Reading through uh, John 9, it's on page 1067. Okay, is everybody there? As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbours and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud in my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others, but others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? 
Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. That man answered, Why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but, to, but if anyone is a worshipper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not God, from God, he, would do no, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now you say, we see, your guilt remains. Right, folks, I hope you have um, the Bible in front of you and John 9 in particular. As you can see from behind me, this is what we're doing today. We're starting a new series just four weeks, uh, asking some difficult questions. So we've called it the can of worms. And the key thing in this series is not just to ask the question, it's to go to Jesus and see if he's got answers. I've got the hardest thing to do this morning. Welcome to the fastest sermon you'll ever hear. Because in 30 minutes this morning, I want to talk about the subject of suffering. It's a vast subject. So there's lots that could be said. I can't say everything. Not every question you have will be answered. That would take far too long. But definitely we want to give it a serious go and we want to think about it. So why don't we ask God for his help and let's think. Father, we are in a planet for all its beauty, for all its joys like little Emelyn, The fact of the matter is there is serious suffering. So we don't want to hide. We don't want to put our head in the sands. We want to ask the question, why? Will you speak to us this morning? As your word is opened, tell us what we need to know. We don't expect that you will tell us everything we want to know but tell us what we need to know. For we trust you. Amen. So how do you approach the subject of suffering? It's a vast subject. Lots lots and lots have been written on it. Later, Later I'll show you an entire religion has been born out of the attempt to address the answer. Why is there suffering? 
And on one sense, we could start and be trivial. The reason you're suffering is because I've told you to wear shoes and you've now kicked your toe. We could start at the very trivial level. Like, suffering is a consequence of something done that you did. So we could be trivial. Or we could get a little bit more profound. And we could say this, the reason you're suffering is because your entire life you ate at McDonald's, you didn't drink water, and now your internal organs are giving up the ghost. So there's a cause, an effect, and you know, we could do that, I suppose. But what we want to do this morning is we want to go to the deepest level. We want to get above the, your suffering. and your. We want to go to the highest level. Why is there suffering? Full stop. Why is there suffering? We want to ask that question at the most profound level. And we don't just want to answer where does suffering come from, because I think that's an easy answer. I want to know why, not just where it comes from, although we'll touch on that. Why is there suffering? Does Jesus have an answer? And by answer, if Jesus is going to give us an answer, then I don't just want an answer that's intellectually credible. I want an answer that's emotionally satisfying. Most people who are suffering don't just want to know intellectually why they're suffering. They want something that is emotionally satisfying. A good answer makes sense. It's intellectually robust. And a good answer gives us comfort. Why we're suffering. It must be both. Should we even ask the question? Some people don't like answering, asking questions. I want to say that questions are vital. Without questions, faith won't grow. How do you grow your faith? Answer, you ask questions. At this church, we welcome questions, hard questions. But questions must be sincere. They must be genuine. See, some people ask this question, why is there suffering? Not because they want an answer to prove that there can't be a God. In other words, they're not really answering the question. So, the argument goes like this. The Christian God is supposed to be all-loving. The Christian God is supposed to be all-powerful. But there is suffering, therefore the Christian God doesn't exist. Either he can't stop suffering, which means he's not all-powerful, or he doesn't want to stop all suffering, which means he's not all-loving. So the Christian God doesn't exist. And we can put the argument like this. God is all-powerful. God is all-loving. Fact, there is suffering, equals the Christian God does not exist. That's how people put the, it's called a syllogism, but we won't go into that. That's how the argument goes. I want to tell you that I can really feel for this. Don't just dismiss this. This, is, this, is, this cuts deep. And I'll tell you why. Because it's uniquely the Christian God that's being called into question. Because one and two are only true of the Christian God. Let me try and say, uh, put it this way. This is not a problem for Hindu people. It's not a problem for Hindu people because God is not all-powerful. There are lots of gods. Some gods are good, some gods are bad, and so the good ones don't have power to beat up the bad ones, and that's where suffering comes from. It's not a problem for Hindus. 
It's not a problem for people who believe in karma. This idea of some kind of divine payback. Why you're suffering is for something you did in your former life. If you're three months old and you contract meningitis and you die, you deserve it because of something you did in your previous life. In other words, there is no all-loving God. You're just paying what you deserve. And the idea is that after you've come back a million times, or whatever, I don't know what the number is, at last you will no longer, to be honest, stuff it up. And then you will go to Nirvana where you won't even exist. You'll be part of the nothingness that is there. Don't dismiss that too quickly, as untrue as that is. There's a Christian version of it. The Christian version is the reason you're suffering is because God is punishing you. Which is cruel and not what the Bible teaches. What about Buddhism? How does Buddhism approach this problem? Well, easily. Buddhism says there's no suffering. There's no such thing as suffering. It's an illusion. Suffering is an illusion that you've created in your mind. It's not real. Suffering comes out of desire. Get rid of desire and you'll have no suffering. As I've often said, that sounds like a religion made up by someone who lives in a tower in the mountains. Because whilst that sounds appealing, the truth is we suffer and it's real and it hurts. And no amount of meditation will bring a child back who's died. What about, by the way, there's a Christian version of that. There's a Christian version of Buddhism. The faith healer. Suffering is your lack of faith. If you really believed God, you would deny it. I'm suffering. No, don't give in to it. Just say it's not there. (laughs) That's a Christian version of Buddhism. We know suffering is real. No matter how much faith you've got, it still hurts. What about Islam? How does Islam deal with this? Ah, Islam really gets around this. Islam says you may not ask questions. There's a phrase in Islam called Inshallah. It's the will of Allah. And therefore all suffering is determined by God and don't you ask questions. There's a Christian version of that. It's called hyper-Calvinism. I fell down the stairs because God wanted to hurt my knees. And boy am I glad that's over. not what the Bible teaches either. And last of all, there is atheism. Why am I doing this? I'm showing you that there are no alternatives. We've got to wrestle with the Christian God if we're going to come up with a real answer to this puzzle. For the atheist, well of course, did you hear Granger this morning? Asking why questions is stupid because there's no reason. There's no rhyme and reason to the universe. It's just, let me quote Granger, blind, pitiless indifference. It is what it is. Don't ask questions. I think atheism is not the opening of the mind, it's the closing of the mind. Because it stops us asking hard questions. But let me show you some logic God is all-powerful. God is all-loving. Fact there is suffering equals the Christian God does not exist. That's not logical. That's the atheistic closing of the mind. Because here is logic. God is all-powerful. God is all-loving, given. Fact there is suffering. 
We're not going to stop on that one. Here's the logic. God has a loving reason to allow suffering and the power to achieve that reason. That's logic. And that's where the Christian comes from. God is all-powerful. God is all-loving. There is suffering. Duh. God has a loving reason to allow suffering and the power to achieve that reason. And that's the question Christians want to ask. What? Oh, I've lost my place. What is that reason? What is that reason? And I want to take you today to John chapter 9. Because in John 9, it doesn't tell us everything. In John 9, Jesus gives us a window. He gives us a little peek into two ultimate reasons for suffering. Two ultimate reasons. Look at verse 1 to 3. John chapter 9. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So here is a man in deep, deep suffering. He's a blind beggar. Verse 3, Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned, or his parents. So there goes the law of karma. But, there's a better reason. That the works of God might be displayed in him. Here are the two reasons. God allows suffering to display his glory. The works of God might be displayed. But secondly, God allows suffering for our ultimate good and joy because the works of God are in him, in the man, the blind man. Jesus says the ultimate reason for suffering is that God may be glorified and we may rejoice. Well, I think we'll have to work on that and that's what the passage does. Let's think about those things together. First of all, God allows suffering for his works to be displayed, for his glory. Jesus says, look at the answer again in verse 3. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned, so he's innocent, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed. God, I mean, sorry, Jesus says, same thing. Jesus says that suffering provides the context for God to be glorified. That's why he allows it. Notice Jesus doesn't say God made this man blind so that God might display God's works. Jesus is not saying God caused the suffering. God made a good world free of suffering we chose to rebel against God. We chose to run the world ourselves. And we have caused most of the suffering in two ways. Directly, hurting each other, greed, pollution. Most of the people starving today are as a direct result of the greed of other people. That's a fact. We've caused the suffering 
directly. And I reckon there are people here this morning who are suffering directly as a result of other people. But it's not just directly, it's also indirectly. The fact is, the whole planet is shaky. There are natural disasters. But that's because there's a planet in disarray. And suffering, and the whole planet being in disarray, is as a result of our rebellion against God. He will not allow this planet to be heaven whilst we continue our rebellion against him. Suffering is a constant reminder that we're not in paradise. We're alienated from God. And he reminds us through suffering of that fact. Just when you thought Ningaloo was paradise, you stand on an urchin. It's a reminder. I'm not yet in heaven. No reason to immigrate to Ningaloo Reef. You know I've got a holiday in three weeks' time in Ningaloo Reef. C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasure. So when I'm kite surfing, he whispers to me, I'm here and I'm good. And I think, yeah, you are. But he shouts at us in our pain. So when I'm next to my mom, who's on her deathbed, God speaks louder than when I'm kite surfing. So whether indirectly or directly, we cause the suffering in the world. And yet God has allowed it, says Jesus, in order to display his glory. Now how does that work? Well, suffering is the perfect opportunity for God to show how great he is. Let me put it to you this way. We would never have known how wonderfully kind and caring God is unless we had been disappointed and we had suffered. Let me try and illustrate. There's a bit of a funny illustration, but let me try and illustrate what I mean. A man falls in love with a woman. They get engaged to be married and it's just blissful. Man, this is going to be one of those marriages you just know are going to work. It looks awesome. They have the idyllic wedding. Shortly afterwards, tragically, there's a car accident and the lady is crippled for life. In fact, she's a complete quadriplegic. At the start of their marriage, here is a woman who sits in a wheelchair, can't move anything except her face muscles. And you know what he does? He stays with her. He loves her. Now, they're only in their 20s. And he spends the next 60 years of his life caring for her, treasuring her. Everything he does, he does for her. Faithful, even on the computer. Completely loving her. He gets an opportunity, through her suffering, to show that he is a far better husband than she could ever have imagined had she not suffered. It's not that he caused the accident. That would be cruel. He didn't. But the fact is she now has a husband who is the envy of all her friends who have not suffered because their husbands are cheating and running around. In the light of her suffering, the glory of her husband comes to light. Our suffering shows what a great and kind God we have because he loves us in spite of who we are and in spite of the suffering we've caused. He graciously works for our salvation. And folks, that's what John 9 points us towards. In John 9, 
we have the story of a blind man. He's born blind. Can you imagine the disappointment of the parents when that little guy comes out and he's just perfect? You know how you do it. Maybe, maybe it's just me. But I counted all fingers, all toes, two legs, two arms. We're going good here. You, you just you take stock. You know, you, you, well, I did. Can't help it. And then two weeks later, the little guy just doesn't seem to respond when you wave things in front of his face. And a month later, he still doesn't. Finally, you take him back to the doctors and the doctor tells you, he can't see. He's blind. Oh, I mean, can you imagine the pain? The disappointment? Why me? My neighbors just had a perfect little baby. Why me? I'm saddled with this blind thing for the rest of my life. And when every other child goes to creche and play care and daycare, your child stays at home. Mom loses out on career opportunities. Can't go back to work. I spend my whole life looking after blindly. But in this society it's worse because when Jesus passes by him, where is he? He's begging. This isn't a society where you go to Centrelink and get extra $200 a week because you're caring for someone with disabilities. He's now on the street begging. The humiliation. We read later that he's of age. I don't know for sure, but we can take that usually to mean he's about 40 years old. So for 40 years, this man is in abject poverty and humiliation, begging for his bread. How often do you think he asked God, why? How often do you think he thought, why? Why me? And then one day, verse 1, he meets Jesus. Jesus comes past. And notice verse 1 how Jesus notices. Look at what it says in verse 1. As Jesus passed by, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. Jesus notices. It's a little window. But what I want to show you from this is that God knows that Jesus really notices. He really knows. You might be sitting here this morning and you suffer in a way, let's be honest, that your church just doesn't appreciate. That your friends don't really get. No one really actually, and they say such nice things, oh it must be horrible what you're going through and stuff. But the truth is they don't really know. But here is a God who really sees, who really does know. Here is a God who doesn't just sit in heaven because look at what it says. As Jesus passed by. That's alright. As Jesus, I nearly saw Jesus passing by to the sound of... Because uh, <laughs> that was pretty apt. It's like, you know. <laughs> I, I thought anyway. But You've got to think to yourself, Jesus passed by. What on earth is Jesus doing on earth? See, what you've got here is a picture not of a God far away, sitting in the clouds somewhere, untouched. Here is a God on earth. Jesus passes by. Here is a God who comes to earth. You know that old song? Uh, by old what's her name? Joan Osborne or somebody Osborne. What if God was one of us? Just a stranger on the bus, 
trying to make his way home. She's writing that song because she's saying, yeah, like God is good, yeah, right. He sits up there in the clouds with a butler and waiter. We're suffering down here. But look at what I read. Here is the God who's with us. He knows what it's like to be a stranger on the bus. He knows what it's like to make your way home. Here is a God who not only sees our suffering, but leaves paradise and comes and enters our suffering and lives amongst us. And Jesus was lonely. Jesus was poor. Jesus was hungry. Jesus was tired, humiliated, betrayed, slandered. And look at verse 4. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming. When no one can work. What does he mean? What a funny little phrase. Night, yeah Jesus, night usually comes after day. That's normal. What does he mean? Well of course he's referring to his death. Through John's gospel. That is a reference to the fact that Jesus, who not only sees our suffering, who not only shares in our suffering, is going to experience the ultimate suffering. He calls it night. When he will hang on the cross and die. Jesus Christ experiences on the cross the nth degree of suffering. And on the cross, what does Jesus ask? What does Jesus say on the cross? My God, my God, why? Jesus asks the why question. That's extraordinary. The next time you ask God why, think Jesus asks the same question. Why? What would Buddhism say to Jesus? Jesus, don't ask why, that's unenlightened. Your suffering isn't real. What would the faith healer say to Jesus as he suffers? You lack faith. What would the Muslim say to Jesus? It's blasphemy to challenge Allah and ask why. What would the atheist say to Jesus? That's a meaningless question. There is no purpose in the universe. Suck it up, princess. But Jesus says why. He feels our pain. He goes with us in suffering. The cross doesn't tell us everything, but I'll tell you what it it, it can tell us, is that suffering cannot mean that God doesn't care. It can't mean that, because here is the God-man on the cross. If you're suffering this morning because someone let you down, you've got a friend in Jesus. Someone let him down. Someone has abused you. And you're suffering because of that. Jesus knows what it's like to be abused. You're suffering because of guilt. Oh, if anybody here knew what I had done. And it's eating you up. Here is the God-man who dies on the cross to remove all guilt. Who suffers with our guilt. Maybe you're suffering because you're lonely. On the cross, Jesus was abandoned by everybody. Perhaps you're just suffering physically. You've got some physical thing that is killing you. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer physically. But here's the point. He doesn't just empathize with our suffering. He doesn't just experience our suffering. Here's the point. He swallows it up. He takes all our suffering and on the cross... Jesus ends it all. He absorbs all our suffering and the cause of suffering, which is our sin. Every evil thought, word and deed, he takes it all on himself. 
and suffers in our place. See, here's the point. By suffering, Jesus ends all suffering because he rises triumphantly from the grave. We celebrated this last week. Do you remember last week? By rising from the dead, Jesus Christ puts a line under all suffering. He's done it all. And he hints at this. Look at John 9, verse 6 to 7. He hints at this in this passage. Look at John 9, verse 6. Having said these things, Jesus spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. My son has got OCD. I'll never forget when he first read these words as a young lad. He kept saying gross, gross. Nearly put him off Jesus for life. Look at verse 6. Having said these things, Jesus spat on the ground, made mud with the saliva, then he anointed the man's eyes with mud, said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now what's going on here? It's a picture of Jesus as the recreator. You will remember in Genesis that God made man out of mud, the soil. And of course water in the Bible is always, we just baptized someone this morning, water is a picture of new birth. It's a picture, even in Genesis 1, waters over the surface of the deep. And God brings new life out of it. So Jesus, by spitting on the ground, making water, anointing the man with soil, and sending him to the pool of Siloam, where he goes under the water, all of that is a picture of recreation. Jesus is saying, I am the one who restores humanity, who ends the suffering, who brings something brand new out of it all. And of course the Bible storyline carries on. And we get to the end of the Bible, let me read you some words from Revelation 21. Look at what Jesus has accomplished by taking our suffering on himself. It says this in Revelation 21. Just listen. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorning for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither will there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Here's the point. God allows suffering so that all the suffering that we've caused, so that he can display the glory of his mercy and grace. Not just by seeing our suffering, but by coming down and sharing in our suffering, by enduring our suffering in our place and by bringing it all to an end. That's God's grand design. That's why he allows suffering. And that's what Jesus demonstrates. Look at the end of John 9 from verse 30. Look at what happens to this man. The man answered, Why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshipper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Now, never since the world began 
Has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind? If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin. Would you teach us? And they cast him out. And Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him. Isn't that lovely? There's a, there's a pun there. You've seen him. You've seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Had this man not suffered, the glorious work of God would not have been displayed and he would not have bowed down and worshipped Jesus. Why is there suffering? God allows suffering to display his glory that the works of God might be displayed. But at this point you've got every right to think, well that's a little bit God-centred, which is actually great. But that's another subject. What about the poor sucker who's suffering? So God, let me get this straight, Dwayne, he allows suffering to display his, I admit he sounds awesome. What about the poor bloke or the poor woman who's suffering? Well here's the thing. God allows suffering for our ultimate good and joy. Here's the thing. God has so brilliantly wired the universe that his glory and our good go together. Jesus says that he displays God's glory, not out there, look at the universe and wonder, although that's true, but he displays his glory in us. It's not one against the other. So let's quickly consider this last point as we look at John 9. What we see in John 9 is what happens to the blind beggar. He's blind for, let's, I don't know for sure, but let's say 40 years or whatever. He's a beggar and Jesus heals and there is this great line. Look at verse 25. Uh, you know there's a song that goes like this. It's, it's that line in the beautiful song Amazing Grace. Look at verse 25. John 9 verse 25. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Oh, that's that line in that song, Amazing Grace. Once I was blind, now I can see. Now what you've got to do is you've got to picture the joy that underlines that sentence. It's not, once I was blind, ho-hum, and now I can see, ho-hum. There's joy, there's incredible joy because here is a man who sees colours like he's never seen before. Here is a man who keeps staring at the sky. What are those white things passing overhead? That, have you seen that? That is extraordinary. And everyone around him is going, I've seen that a thousand times. But he doesn't. He thinks it's the best thing he's ever seen. Clouds, sky, he sees his mom and dad's face for the first time. Everyone else is going, you know how ugly mom and dad is. And he's going, it's amazing, it's beautiful. Here's the point. Here's the point. Suffering is going to make the joy even sweeter. He would not have enjoyed seeing so much if he hadn't been blind first. Let me try and illustrate this. You're never going to believe me, but Matt is an Australian and I'm a South African and he taught me something about a barbie. You, you, Australians don't teach South Africans about barbecuing meat. But I learned something from Matt. What he taught me was at IGA, 
they got this porterhouse steak. My apologies to all vegetarians. Porterhouse steak and it's marinated. I'd never thought of this before. And you take it and you barbie it so slowly and you make sure it's still pink inside and it ends up, oh, just trust me, delicious. Ask Matt to teach you. And so once a month or so, I get this porterhouse marinade thing and I barbie it for the children. And it's like a treat. It's not cheap, but it's not expensive. It's actually quite nice. Anyway, it's a special dinner. Now here's what happens. When I'm going to do that, I want the children to go hungry. I want them to go hungry. Because I know what's coming. And they come at 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, because Saturday's our day off, 4 o'clock, Dad, I'm starving. And I go, cool, yeah. <laughs> Not because I'm cruel. It's because I know what's coming. It's going to be awesome. Don't spoil it. Don't go eat peanut butter sandwiches. Don't do that. I don't want you to spoil the awesome dinner I'm making by not suffering. Do you get it? I know what's coming. Now, in the grand scheme of things, God knows what's coming. It's not a porterhouse steak. It's better. And therefore, he doesn't want you to spoil it by loving this world and eating peanut butter and honey sandwiches. When there's a porterhouse steak waiting for you, listen to the way this writer, Dostoevsky, puts it. It's brilliant. This is what he says. I believe, like a child, that suffering will be healed and made up for. That all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage. Like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small mind of man. But in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts and for the comforting of all resentments and for the atonement of all crimes of humanity and for all the blood they have shed. That it will make it not only possible to forgive, here's the line, but to justify what has happened. It's going to be so great that the hunger was worth it. But there's more. Think more with me. Yeah, Dwayne, couldn't God have made heaven sweet without the bitter experience of earth? Yeah, I suppose he could have. But just the point. He wants to display his glory in us. It's not just a case of the marinated porterhouse tasting good. Here's the point. If you weren't hungry, you wouldn't eat it. It's not just about how nice it is. It's the fact that if you're not hungry, you won't eat it. You won't get it unless you go hungry. And that's what happens in verse 37 to 41. Look at what Jesus says. Verse 37 to 41. Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who's speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. He ate up the porterhouse steak. He feasted. Now watch what Jesus said. Verse 39. For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees who weren't born blind, who hadn't suffered, 
near him heard these things and they said to him, Are we also blind? Here's the astonishing thing. Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that the blind are the blessed ones. The one who suffers gets to feast on the porterhouse steak. And those of you who think you can see, you're eating peanut butter and honey. See, where is the blind man today? Does anyone know where he is? Does anyone know where the blind man is today? He's in heaven. And he's feasting on God. And if you had to tap him on the shoulder and say to him, gee, that was a bummer, eh? 40 years being blind, what kind of God would allow you to suffer like that? He would say, no, the fact that I was blind means I turned to him. Had I been seeing, had I had a successful career as a lawyer, I wouldn't have cared about Jesus. I wouldn't have eaten the porterhouse steak. My blindness was my greatest blessing. 2,000 years I've been in glory and another trillion to come. Suffering makes us search and long for more. Suffering points us to solutions that are outside of this world. John 9 tells the story of the rich, the arrogant, self-righteous Pharisee who reject Jesus because of their religious rules about the Sabbath. They've got life sorted. It's the blind beggar. And here's the irony. It's the blind beggar who sees actually. Why are we suffering? Because God wants us to feast. He wants us to see. To see more than we would have if we didn't suffer. Blessed, says Jesus, are those who mourn. They'll be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They'll be filled. The Bible says, come now, rich people, weep. Howl for your miseries. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. This is James. Your gold and silver have corroded. Listen to what it says. You've laid up treasure in the last days. You've lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. The Bible says, weep and howl, those of you who don't suffer. You've got your reward. Blessed are those who suffer, who look forward to the porterhouse steak. I must change that illustration, because there might be vegetarians here. Here's the point. If you have heaven on earth, do you want heaven on earth? then that's what you'll get. For those of you who don't experience heaven now, boy, have you got good things coming. You've got such good things coming. Suffering is God's way of working in us. Suffering is God's way of making heaven sweeter. Suffering makes us want it more. Suffering gets us there through the substitutionary suffering of Jesus. And suffering shapes us for heaven. I want to close with one last thing. Why does God allow suffering? Because his works get displayed in us. You must be, there must be a couple of parents here today. Don't you purposely add a little bit of suffering to your child every now and then? See, what happens when you take a child and they experience no suffering whatsoever? 
Which one of you doesn't think that that is a disaster? Any child who experiences no suffering whatsoever will turn out a disaster. God is a perfect parent. A perfect parent. And I want to leave you with this long quote. It's quite long, but I think it's brilliant from C.S. Lewis. Listen to what he says. And anyone who emails me this week, I shall email this quote to you if you want it. To say, Lord, don't let anything bad happen to me is really a way of saying, don't love me. Because even the poets say love is something more splendid and stern than mere kindness. Kindness merely as such doesn't care whether its object becomes good or bad, provided only that it escapes suffering. But if God is love, then he is by mere definition much more than kindness. He has often rebuked us and often condemned us, but he has never regarded us with contempt. God has paid us the intolerable compliment of loving us. We are therefore, not metaphorically, but in truth, a divine work of art. Now listen to this. Now over a sketch made idly to amuse a child, an artist may not take much trouble. But over the magnum opus of an artist's life, the work which the artist loves the most, the artist will take endless trouble and would doubtless thereby give endless trouble to the picture if it were alive. One can imagine an alive picture having been scrubbed and commenced for the tenth time And the picture wishes it was only a thumbnail sketch whose making was a minute and not a magnum opus. In the same way, it's natural for us to wish that God had designed us for something less glorious and some less destiny. But then we're not wishing for more love. We're wishing for less love. You ask for a loving God, you've got one. Not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way but the consuming fire himself. The love that made this world as persistent as an artist over his life work, it is certainly a burden of glory, not only beyond our hearts, but also, except in rare moments of grace, beyond our desiring. Here's the point. God is all-powerful. God is all-loving. There is suffering. It's not that he doesn't exist. It's that God has a loving reason to allow suffering and the power to achieve that reason. And those two things are that his glory would be displayed and that it would be for our good and our joy. Now folks, I could say tons more and I'm sure there are excellent questions, but I'm afraid I'm going to have to go. So we're not going to have questions and answers today.